Welcome to the 89th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about how simple systems have less downtime. Mm, mostly. Sort of. There was an article written by Greg Kogan called Simple Systems Are More Available, and we'll throw it into the show notes, that outlines a tenant that we generally share that running a simpler system will have less complexity and less moving parts and will therefore suffer less outages and less downtime to deal with. We would like to thank 42 Lines for sponsoring this episode. 42 Lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in observability, cloud migrations, reliability, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. The industry is moving fast. Make the right moves with the experience of 42lines.net. So the article lays out, by analogy, a container ship. And I think the reason for using that analogy is fairly apt, considering the way the world is moving with Docker and Kubernetes and all of that, and tries to make the argument via way of this analogy that having a simple system is easier and less prone to downtime because if things fail, you can fall back on you know manual controls and other things and and you still don't lose control of the ship. You don't lose control of the, the system. It really tried to make a nice analogy. I mean, I, I, I like the analogy. It's just completely foobar. I, I think it's better to say that it's it's a leaky analogy. Um, <laughs> yeah. The... The years of engineering, the decades, the centuries of engineering that have gone into shipbuilding to make things this size, to do GPS, to do time coordination, to do all kinds of things that ultimately result in the control plane of this being a simple operator, a simple thing to operate. That's one thing, but the actual container ship itself isn't really that simple. Yeah, so we've been, you know, in ships floating on the water for. Uh, who's the history buff? Uh, I think it's like 3,000 years or four. Um, we've had a little bit of time to work out the kinks here. Well, and also, I, you know, over time, the and I don't want to label the word easy here, but the, the solutions that seem, a lot of times people are like, why don't we develop these uh, programs that are so stable or, uh, you know, people point to NASA and to the Apollo program especially. Jared, it's called Erlang. <laughs> I thought it was COBOL. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, NASA is actually a really great example. You're right. But I mean, it, those also, it, again, I'm, I'm trying not to throw the word easy there, but the, those solutions uh, were solvable. They sometimes had uh, hardware fixes that were just simplistic in design. But then over time, complexity has grown and, and you can't easily figure have something that just fixes a problem like we used to fix them because we are at an abstraction layer that is a step above or we're doing something that is a little more complex uh so yeah i just think that some things are not just going to have an easy solution uh just because we just either haven't had the time for it yet or it's just a hard problem to solve well i think the nasa thing is is very apt because in principle a rocket is a fairly simple device you have a propellant you have a nozzle you have thrust you ignite it and it goes. And as long as it doesn't explode, you're fine. And yeah, maybe they've might. had some pretty spectacular failures in that simple system. But it's a relatively simple system. Check your O-wings, everybody. The the complexity <laughs> is how do you keep th- payload or humans safe? How do you return them to Earth? How do you do guidance? How do you do navigations? How do you do communications? There's all these other things about it that are really complex. The 
the part of building a rocket, people have been building rockets again for thousands of years. That's not, that part isn't the hard part. The hard part is all the other details. Right. And all of this said, I do like this article. Because the article does touch on one of the things that really bothers me about systems design. And you almost said it a minute ago, Jared. It's the, why don't we just mentality? We could we could just add this thing here. We could just, no, We could stop. just add this extra module and link these systems together and... So is it bad because it's feature creep or is it bad because it's a complex system and complex systems are complex? Yes. <laughs> it's... It's bad to add things without a really good reason because, you know, right now it solves a problem. Six months from now, a year from now, five years from now, an engineer, an operations staff, somebody has to then support that and figure out exactly why are we running this and how does it interoperate and who else called that library and why did we make this decision and why didn't we choose that th the other thing instead? Why are we running three databases? This article has three different principles of measuring and dealing with and and how to practice simple systems and the third one is modifications before additions and that to me is really one of the key parts of this philosophy is if you have a tool it does 90 percent of what you want it to do a lot of times it's really easy to to add on to it to bolt on to it to cover five or seven more percent of stuff you need to do and sometimes that gets out of hand really quickly when you've built a really complex, really com uh, a convoluted system on top of a of a known stable tool, a tool like Terraform that everybody's familiar with. Or Ken, you were last week you were talking about setting up uh, last week. So Ken, the last episode you were talking about setting up a Kubernetes cluster with Raspberry Pis or Rock sixty four nodes. And on the surface, you know, Kubernetes for a lot of people is kubeadm or kubectl. And they just use it and it works and they, they go to GKE or they go to EKS and they say, I want a Kubernetes cluster and they use it and it runs and they, they learn the syntax of how to you know, schedule things and do affinities and taints and whatever else. But the actual underlying concepts are monstrously complex and it's just, it's, it's a cover for it. Well, what you've ended up there is a, is a reasonably simple interface to a very complex ecosystem, not a simple application. It's a many, many applications all bolted together. And it's rather impressive that they all work so well seamlessly that you get just a simple interface. But what you discover when you're doing it yourself is they don't. It takes a lot of effort. And that's what you're paying for for EKS or, or GKE is somebody else doing all that work for you. And I would argue that a lot of the Kubernetes infrastructure and the kind of the core stuff they've gotten to what they need in terms of the, the core modules and the, the core systems and plumbing and the networks and whatever else. But along the way, there was a lot of duplicated effort. Um, look at the two different DNS servers, for example, where you have a lot of people who are working on things and they're adding features rather than trying to adapt current features. And that's always, that's always hard. We have an awfully strong tendency as a, as a profession to add something new and shiny to the existing tool set rather than fix what's there. I, I got another example. Um, at uh, the day job, we uh, use Prometheus. Uh, I imagine a lot of our listeners use that or have looked at it. Uh, obviously, a problem in that space is that we need something for long-term storage. So when we are investigating those solutions, Thanos was a very 
uh, compelling option just from the simplicity's sake of how it was built. It it reused a lot of the same components that Prometheus is, itself uses. Um, there wasn't a lot of uh, complex systems underneath to keep it going. Now, on the flip side of that, there's some challenges there that, that are presented there because of that. Uh, there isn't some of the same feature set that these others that other solutions provide, and I'm I'm thinking of something like Cortex, which can also do uh, query caching and and things like that. But you know the the Thanos solution was just really nice because it was it was almost composable of Prometheus parts, Prometheus parts and cloud storage or uh, other cloud platform devices. Similarly, the design exactly. of Thanos is really simple. Similarly, the log archiving process that we had built out in that environment simply takes Logstash and instead of writing it out to Elasticsearch, wrote it out to a file, which you then compressed and stuck into cloud storage. And was it the most efficient? No. Was it the easiest to use? No. But it reused existing components of the pipeline so you didn't have to go learn and understand and maintain an entirely different technology stack. Exactly. And one of the things this article brought up too is if you bring somebody new on, it's easy to ramp people up. They don't take years to get up to speed hey you've done any of this stuff before it's all simple pieces all bolted together that is the gospel i have preached to i don't know how many clients being able to hire a new person and get them up and running relatively quickly being able to have a person that can move from one team to another and spin up on that new team stuff relatively quickly is features you need to have in a, in a company. And of course, the flip side to that is startups that are trying to get a MVP out the door. And to them, time is money. And the faster they can get a solution built and shipped that works, the better. And so if this means using two different databases because one set of libraries needs MySQL and the other set of libraries really needs Postgres and you don't have the time to figure it out right now, well, that's fine. But realize that you're adding extra complexity and extra technical debt to yourself and your team and the team that follows you six months, a year, two years. Uh, we'll need to use Kubernetes so that we can be platform agnostic and we'll need to make sure that we have auto scaling and cluster autopod doohickeys turned on. And yeah, that's when you know that you're not working towards your MVP. Well, actually, I would argue that if you're a startup right now and you are looking at, you know, the MVP solution, Kubernetes is the correct base level choice for a lot of things because it's a common thing it's easy to hire skill set for it it's easy to understand it's well maintained it's well upgraded has a lot of mind share so as complex as it is having it be one of the pieces in your stack is actually a pretty reasonable solution at this point you know for a new startup i agree but but I, that def that mentality sort of continues in clients that i've seen that have had this ever-growing list of requirements for how their Kubernetes cluster works, and they don't even have any applications to run in it yet. I, th I think well, the distinction I'd... there, though, would be to use the services, the native services that are provided by your cloud platform. That would be, you know, EKS and Amazon uh, to use uh, their RDS, whatever flavor you would want to use, to use their messaging bus, yada, 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 instead of saying, well, we need to make sure we're we're not locked into a certain provider because just by the fact of using their platform, you're locked in to a certain extent. 10,000%. Um, so, I mean, yeah. the, the amount of time that you're going to spend and the complexity to try and make your environment 
uh, not unique to a specific platform, in my opinion, is a lot of wasted time that you could be spending just building your business on a specific platform, whichever you choose. Being cloud platform vendor agnostic right now is really difficult and is level 73 in your journey as a company. I was actually going to say impossible. And when folks, you know, wave that flag in startup days, that's usually a, a red flag of, of what we need to avoid. Docker is great being able to deploy applications that are wonderful. That means you can take things to the next cloud platform provider. But there's all the, the instrumentation and infrastructure around that. There are caveats to, to my rantings, but... Well, back on the, the RDS versus MySQL conversation for a second. So you're evaluating using a cloud provider's built-in services, and we'll use RDS because it's easy to talk about, versus MySQL. It's feature compatible. It runs the same engines. It runs the same pieces. It has the same security layers. It has whatever. Running RDS costs more. On an absolute basis, it costs more than running MySQL by yourself. However, getting multi-master MySQL replication set up correctly, getting it done for automatic failover during events, getting it set up for operations work, as you start... As you start backups. up and backups, um, backups, other other restores that happen from other other things, people wanting dumps of tables and other snapshots or corruptions. As you go down this path, the complexities increase, and you are going to spend more and more of your time running MySQL. And at some point, there definitely is a threshold that you cross over, and it's it makes a lot more sense to run it yourself than run than run an RDS. But for especially a startup or any kind of medium sized or smaller business. Look at that real hard because running MySQL by yourself doesn't buy you a whole lot. You're probably not spending a full FTE on the maintenance and upkeep of MySQL. Weigh that against RDS because that is the, that, that's the layer of complexity you're adding here is now we're managing yet another service. We have a yet another set of alarms, another PagerDuty queue, another group of people that when you're hiring, you have to make sure people have that domain knowledge. Well, also for a, later on, for a startup, is your goal to be platform agnostic or to grow your business because they both take a lot of effort. Well, again, you could argue if, you're, if your startup is doing services in, say, you're, you're serving customers in Azure and in Amazon and in the Google Cloud and you're doing IBM's, whatever IBM calls it these days, you need to be in all the platforms. You need to be running everywhere. Right, if that's your business. But if your business is something else altogether, yeah. serve, yeah. you know. if, if you're doing software as a service, you, you have to be multi-everything all the time. And you have a different set of complexities and constraints. But if your business is building some widgets and you need your infrastructure, you know, your your production, your accounting, your HR and all this other stuff, and you start building up your systems, you know, putting the effort into being platform agnostic, is throwing money away when you don't have, you need your business up to a certain extent. Then when you're bigger, now you, you know, hey, maybe we should run our own. Maybe we're big enough now to start negotiating. And look at and looking at switching, but that at that point, then you sh then you start. Okay, we need to re-architect this. Plus, when you start a startup, V one is always just enough to get it working. Okay, I have another better example than MySQL. Then, <laughs> twenty years ago, every company that I worked for or friends of mine worked for ran their own email servers. Now I've run my own email servers. It's fun. Now I run my own email server. Almost no companies run their own email servers. There, there are definitely special cases, people who have been running them for decades and they, they keep on doing so. But almost it's everybody true. now outsources email. 
because it's a solved problem. There's no cost advantage of doing it yourself. There's no real competitive advantage of doing it yourself. So everybody uses... Doing it well is incredibly complex and time-consuming and expensive to find clean IP addresses that have a good reputation (laughs) to send email from. But it's also, it's a canned service that is solved and everybody knows. And yeah, there's no... There's no reason to do it yourself. Well, if you're a university and you have 50,000 student accounts, maybe. But even at that point, like Jack and I worked for university many, many years ago. And while we were there, we went from running the, the university's email servers to outsourcing email to Google because it didn't make sense to use our time anymore to do that. At over 100,000 user accounts. So no, we had the volume to justify being able to run a a really beefy email setup, and we did. And eventually, the cost-benefit ratio of what Google costs versus, you know, the feature trade-off, it didn't make sense anymore. Well, but but also then, over time, it wasn't just email, right? It's it's a lot of other features that you get when you go to somebody like Google that has uh, an entire platform that offers other services besides email. Hey, that was before Google had the cloud. Uh, Right, exactly. (laughs) I I agree. At the same time, you guys were migrating into your university. I was working for um, Metropolitan School District, and we were doing the same thing. We switched to Google because it just didn't make sense for the amount of effort to run email in-house versus what they were charging. But that's when it's, you know, you're looking at a cost benefit. As you, For a lot of these services, as they scale up, they actually become more expensive to outsource. But uh, I'm also just morally philosophy, run it yourself, controlling my own destiny. So I generally end up thinking, do it in-house. Yeah, there's a trap here that I want to kind of suss out because I, I feel that so many different clients, so many different people sort of fall into this trap. And it's easy to think of of a service like RDS is simple. You pay for it, they run it for you, you don't have to worry about it. And it's easy to apply that philosophy, the philosophy of this article, to you know, every problem that pops up in your company. But it's important to figure out where that dividing line is between your supporting infrastructure that you don't want to be subject matter experts in versus your critical business path, your core competency, there's the right word, um, that you want to be subject matter experts in that is a complex problem that you do want to focus in. Because if your uh, core competencies for your business is a simple, easily solved, easily outsourced problem, I find a new job. Well, I think I think Apple actually is one of the great examples of this. They famously said internally many, many years ago that you should never outsource your core competencies. And for example, if Apple were to outsource material design or uh, material selection for products, you know, the aluminum they're using, the plastic, the glass, the whatever, that's insanity. It's it's not part of, you know, really part of building an iPhone in some senses or, you know, the new Mac Pro, but it is part of who they are and letting that control go to somebody else, let somebody else either define or block or reshape them. And it's part of the reason that I bet they're moving off of Intel processors in their desktop and laptop lines in the next couple of years because they control the ARM platform that they're using. They have a, the fully licensed chipset, whatever, for the ISA. And so they're not beholden to Intel to to get through the process of 
you know, the next revision of the next architecture, the next, you know, process shrink. They will be moving over to one that they control and they can say, hey, I want these particular functions on the chip. This is this is our core competency. Even though you don't think of Apple as a chip designer, they really are. But a lot of companies, their core competency is really pretty narrowly focused. I mean, most of us don't have to choose the grade of aluminum we use in our, our widgets that we're selling. I was just going to say, that's, that's something missing in my life is having to choose the grade of aluminum. <laughs> or, excuse me, aluminum. Uh, it depends on which country you're in, Jared. But I mean, several jobs ago, Jared and Ken and I worked for a an offshoot of Panasonic that was doing commercial weather forecasting. And you would think that commercial weather forecasting, the, the really the their their secret sauce is the weather data. But it's also the model and it's having data center expertise and acumen to actually understand how and where to locate these things. And there's a bunch of other pieces that aren't directly related to getting the data, downloading the other parts of the model, understanding the the national models that are published. There's lots of other pieces of this that, yeah, monitoring the system, you know, running Nagios or whatever else probably didn't need to be done in-house. That probably could have been outsourced relatively easily. But there's a huge stack of things that on first glance aren't obviously core competencies that really are. And for each one of those things, you need to make sure you're not unnecessarily multiplying entities. You're not just adding things in because every time you add a new system, a new dependency, a new API feature, a new anything, you've just you've just polluted your, your problem space significantly. It's kind of like when you add lots of labels to your to your metrics suddenly the cardinality starts creeping up rapidly because oh, was it was it MySQL or was it RDS or was it this or was it that or are we on the tagged VLANs or not the tagged VLANs or whichever one whichever problem you're looking at at the moment the more variables you add to it the harder it is to isolate and test and verify and that's very much what I want my clients to purposely think about and plan for is where is that circle of core competency you're right. There's probably other surrounding pieces other than a weather model code written in Fortran. Um, but knowing what those core competencies are and where your your specialty domain exists is is vastly important to keeping your company focused and keeping production moving forward and features rolling out and a stable platform that your customers come back to use. Customer I've been working at recently has been trying to pull everything off the shelf and I'm simplifying a little. I always call my current client Bruce. (laughs) And Bruce is pulling things off the shelf. Correct. But they're, but they're pulling from all over the place. And that's been what I've been working on is getting all these pieces from different vendors to all talk together. And when I'm sure when they started down this path, it made sense. Hey, this, this, guy does this good we'll get this from here and this and it made sense except when you start trying to get them all to talk together and work together and they all have slight differences on their interfaces and the networks they're on and you know which vendors doing what it it becomes hey i didn't say it was a simple problem Well, that's the thing it be the simplicity of we're not going to do it ourselves or we're going to go with whoever's doing each of these little pieces the best added its own complexity and things and his, that, that boggle my mind are people might want to outsource Kafka. You can easily do that today. Kafka definitely takes its own skill set to run. Perfect competency to, to outsource. But that 
message bus system may be passing uh, messages that are critical to your uh, core competencies in your in your business, and then you're routing all that through a third party, which always kind of makes me a little itchy. <laughs> and I know you were dealing with something similar, Ken. Oh yeah, and and but the other the other parts. Not only do you have to pass them through this third vendor, now you've got to get all the authentication bits. All you know, what I've been running to now is I can't get one of the pieces to actually connect. I don't know why, because they're in two different places, talking to, from two different networks through two different clouds. And I don't know where the disconnect is. It's not my stuff. I can't decipher the, the error messages. Oh, yeah, well, we're still at the tier where I just you know post to their Slack and hope somebody comes back with something helpful. Yeah, your VPC rubrics cube <laughs> is misaligned somehow. Exactly. But, but even when you have that problem sorted out and everything's working correctly, you have another layer of things to deal with. What is the rate limit on the service? What is the cost model on the service? How fast can you, like if you're using Kinesis data streams with, with AWS, how fast can you expand the topic for parallelism? All of these things have to be considerations that you know and understand implicitly. access to my data? How important is my data? How are my IAM roles configured to allow other people to change or modify right. or distribute or whatever? And yeah, it's, it can be simpler to say, Hey, I can, I can get Kinesis data streams up and running in 10 minutes. It doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean that it, it's free of complexity or free of decisions or free of understanding down the road. And the great thing about a difference between the MVP versus a more productionized version of your product versus growing and maturing as a company is that there are inflection points as your business matures, where you can have the ability to turn around, look at what you've built, and realize we're growing, we need to retool, these components need to be in-house, these components should be outsourced. We want to make these architectural changes to bring us at the next level of scaling. But it's important that you don't try to second system yourself and build an overly complex, will defeat, will conquer the world because again, as your company and business grow, you'll be able to take that inflection point again at a later time. This reminds me of one of my, my favorite small wins with Elasticsearch when I was running logging stuff at scale. We had built an incredible array of Perl scripts and cron jobs that handled index maintenance and rollover and all these other things. And we were able to drop it all and move to Curator, which somebody else was writing and maintaining and it was still in Python. But it was a single piece of logic, a single piece of supported code that we no longer had to chase down or track down. And it was understandable. It was, you could have a single person figure it out relatively quickly. You know, a couple of days with the manual and looking at the config files, and you knew exactly what it did. And there were no hidden gotchas. There were no hidden conditionals about, oh, you can't run this after this time, or you have to run this before that. No, you, you just you ran the configs, you let it run, you let it do its thing. And importantly, more importantly, in fact, anybody else who is reasonably conversant in Elasticsearch, you can also say, hey, you've used Curator before, or if you haven't as part of the official documentation, go spin up on it. It's done in the same methodology and the same style as everything else in Elastic. So you can just dive right in. And now you're not teaching somebody yet another piece of complexity and cruft. And we got to remove that. And I love being able to remove anything from a system because that's, to me, that's the real hallmark of growth. As a person who came in late to that stuff, it was wonderful because 
also provided consistency. I remember coming in and, and starting to learn all these bespoke scripts that we used. And most of them, if you ran them with no switches, they gave you their help, as a lot of things did. And one of them I ran to get its help. It didn't do that. It just went off and did its job at the wrong time with the wrong options because I didn't know that that's one script. So with Curator and we switched that. And when you get to that point, it provides consistency because this is something that other people are using and everybody has to agree on how it works and expects it to work rather than, oh, I wrote this one. It does how I want. And this other one's slightly different. So these philosophies aren't exactly new. I used to run Slackware back in the day, and one of Peter Volderking's big things was the KISS property, the KISS philosophy. Keep it simple, stupid. And I use that four-letter acronym to this day, and, and I learned that and was messing with Slackware in the 90s. And that was really one of the most important things I learned from running that distribution. Yeah, when Brendan brought up this topic, it really hit home because I always say, I'm similar to keep it simple, stupid, is clever is bad. I hate, oh, I came up with this clever solution. Oh, shit, I'm going to get woken up at three in the morning and over sometimes this Sometimes you need a clever solution, <laughs> but a lot of times you don't. You yeah, don't want to prevent yourself from shooting yourself in the foot because you might need to be clever. Yeah, Sometimes I clever love, is the only way through. But you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot either. I love reading clever solutions in Pearl. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. You asked him to say something funny a while ago. He's been waiting. Oh, wow. How long did it take you to come up with that one, Jared? <laughs> and, about and that much, Tom? <laughs> and to my shame, I have left behind clever solutions written in Pearl at several organizations, and I... I really hope that the people who inherit them don't know where I live because some of them are <laughs> awful. Oh, well, I didn't sure do it in Pearl, but I me in my past jobs. I didn't do one this week in Pearl, but I did a clever solution this week that just felt dirty while I was doing it. But it was the only solution I could come up with, and I'm morally opposed to clever clever solutions. But I also needed a solution, and something simple was impossible because of the constraints of the systems I was working with. Shipping is a feature. That it is. It's the old thing. If if salespeople would determine ship date, it would go out immediately. And if an engineer does, does, it never will. Yeah. And you have to find a balance between the two. Because if you don't ship, if you wait until you have the perfect, simple, direct, concise solution for every problem, you're You'll never, never going to ship. And you're You'll never going to get a job. Yeah, your customers will never give you cash because you never gave them anything to give you money for. So... That's why it's important to look at those inflection points as you grow in your business where you can look back and retool, take an existing product and retool it into Kubernetes. Take an existing Kubernetes structure and move it into EKS or enable all the fun cloud cluster auto-scaling. There are too many different auto-scaling ways you can do with Kubernetes. One of, the favorite, one of my favorite things to do when you hire a new person, especially a junior new person, you give them the install manual if you if you have a product that, you, that can be installed, or you give them the documentation for a complex system, and you say, "I want you to build me a test version of whatever this is. Either go install the product on a test system, or go build a small version of this this larger system 
on a disposable instance or whatever. And as they hit problems, write down every problem they come to. Everything they say, why are you doing this? Make a note of that. Because all of those notes are the things you should be looking at. Yeah, I had a Prometheus set up at former client. And when the, that visibility team hired on new people, the first thing we asked them to do is you know, read through our documentation for how a team should set up a Prometheus cluster for themselves. Can you follow it? And can you produce your own Prometheus cluster, being that you have all of the rights of the visibility team to, to build one and all of our documentation and all of us at your disposal? And the idea being to bring that person up to speed and be able to simplify the system. It's really hard for an expert in a system to be able to see what their problems are or to see where the complexity is because they're so immersed in it and they're so enmeshed in all of the reasons the decisions were made. Sometimes it's really helpful to have uh, an outside point of view come in and say, hey, guys, this doesn't make any sense, even if it's just your documentation's unclear. But at times it's, why are we doing this? Like, is there really a reason that we are doing foo and whatever? And you say, yeah, because, you know. My favorite thing is when a new guy, a person with less experience can come in and say, this is how you can simplify your documentation into like these five steps. Or at least reword it. Again, we would like to thank 42 Lines for sponsoring this episode. 42 Lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in observability, cloud migration, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. And please take the time to rate this show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send, your send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. And that wraps it up for the 89th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night.